0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please.
1: Yeah, we do have a fabulous chat room, and I would love for you to join us in there. Come join your insights on the discussion, uh, any other questions that you may have, there's a We have a great group of people there just waiting to chat with you, so come join us at ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat.
0: Now there's one little add-on I'm going to put to that. Uh, In light of the paper we just saw our son write, if you're in your automobile, don't log on, just keep driving. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. This week's Spotlight is all about misleading or flagrant deceptions. Anyone who uses the Internet quickly discovers what photoshopping means. There are several forms of this, some more covert and perhaps innocent than others. For example, if I want to say something like, we live in a universe that reveals its creator every time we sense that special feeling of awe, the best way to make this little statement gain traction is to give it to someone like Einstein or Gandhi. You don't have to say they said it, just write it under their picture and post this new photo containing your statement. This may be dishonest, but it's neutral in the sense that it's not aimed at damaging or corrupting the truth about someone. Then there is the Photoshop job where you buy a commercial picture like the one Cruz used this past week and put Rubio's face on one figure and Obama's on the other, portraying them as Bud's shaking hands. But there is also another form that is equally virulent but gains far less attention from the media. This one occurs when you take a picture of, say, Trump. Put a headline under it. Quote, Trump spits on the Pope. Quote. And then the story that follows where the storyline does not represent the headline. In other words, since most people will see the photo complete with headline, but only a few will read the entire article your article can discuss what the Pope said about building a fence and how Trump truthfully responded, both initially and in the follow-up, but never state that Trump actually spit on the Pope, something he obviously didn't do. Nevertheless, many will go away with the impression Trump spit on the Pope, because they don't read the paper, they don't read the article. Indeed, one of our regular listeners, Brian, sent me a photo we found on Facebook featuring the headline, ban Bernie Sanders now, and showing the horn face of Colonel Sanders from KFC, with further copies stating things like, quote, in 2012 Bernie Sanders was caught snorting weeds. Do you want him as president? Close quote. And, again, quote, once tried to hit a baby. Close quote. The statements are outrageous, but how many people take time to fact check them? Take, for example, this one that was sent Ravinder, a photo of Trump saying, allegedly, "'If I were to run, it would be as a Republican. "'They're the dumbest group of voters in the country. "'They love anything on Fox News. "'I could lie, and they'd eat it up. "'I bet my numbers would be terrific.'" This is a totally bogus mean, but pay attention to what's being said. Not only does this example ill-dignify Trump, it frames Republicans as all being stupid. That's how frames work. And this sort of framing is not just misleading, it can literally devastate a candidate's campaign and for no more reason than a label. The label's race is on. Cruz is a liar, Rubio a robot, Bush has no energy, Clinton is owned by Wall Street, Sanders is an atheist, and so forth. What's in a label after all? Well, a label tends to carry a definition with it, as I've discussed in the past and fully fleshed out together with a matter of framing in my book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will. Think about it for a minute. When Janet Napolitano described returning vets and Second Amendment supporters as potential terrorists in her National Security Domestic Extremism Dictionary, what was she really saying? Now, the definition didn't stand, for when the outrage uh, from the vets and Second, rights, uh, uh, second Amendment uh, supporters hit the press and the news networks picked it all up, she called it back. A label is a definition, and if you define a returning vet or a gun rights supporter as an extremist, the marker has suddenly moved. The dirty tricks are hot and heavy this political season, including framing that comes by way of doctored videos that have every appearance of being real. Did you see the video of Cruz, that the Cruz campaign ran of Rubio saying that there were no answers in the Bible? When indeed what Rubio really said was, all the answers are in the Bible. As you might expect, Cruz disavowed foreknowledge for this and blamed it on a staffer. Word to the wise, pay attention, fact check. It's no longer a world of what you see you can believe. No, it's become a world of question everything. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder?
1: You know, I've got two parts to this. First of all, you know, I do have to say, although your story talked about Trump a lot, that's not to say we're supporting Trump. People often think that because you post a story that says his name and you're not blasting him that you must be supporting him, and that's kind of weird. So I wanted to make that clarification, first of all.
0: No, has ever said that to me. But no. okay, keep I've going.
1: Had, I've had some of that. Because right,
0: we talked about everybody.
1: I know. Okay. I know. Um, but also, you know, one of the things you have to be concerned about, too, isn't just the fact that you see all these bogus posts, say, on Facebook or, or whatever. Even if you think you know even if you plan to disregard them it doesn't stop it from having an effect when you see more and more of them there is that um the fact that everybody else thinks this way therefore you should too so it it still has an effect on you so and you have to be on double shows, guard
0: and the research shows it uh you can read the bad headline you can see the retraction you can know it was false but it still nevertheless can affect how you uh, how you feel are the decisions that you make in the future, right?
1: It does. So I think, you know, especially when it comes to this campaign season, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to really pay attention and, you know, do as much research of our own in order to discover the person that we actually want to vote for based on the facts. But it, it takes work and that, that is our responsibility.
0: Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured my new book, Gotcha, the Subordination of Free Will. Kent wrote, I must thank you for your honest effort to wake people up to what's really going on in the world. I just bought six more copies of Gotcha to give every member of my family. Thank you. Well, thank you, Kent. It's good to spread the word. I like that. How about you, Ravinder?
1: I must certainly do.
0: Martha wrote, Gotcha is so well-documented and fact-filled that looking back, it's like reading an adventure story, sometimes an inflammatory one. That's also a textbook. Too bad my college texts were not more like gotcha. Inflammatory one. I'm I'm not sure I get that.
1: Maybe not inflammatory, but it can certainly rile you up because you have this awareness of all of these people that you think are protecting you actually
0: aren't. You walk away and... Yeah, okay. It's kind of the DuPont story. you know? Yep. <clears throat> Richard wrote, This is this all sounds very heavy. I have to say I found got you a compelling and fun read. I streaked through it. It would be good to mention how some of your readers find the book really fun to get through. Entertaining almost. Compelling at the least. Also, I love the structure of the book. And that made it really readable, too. You know, the belief versus truth opening in each chapter. It is essential to those seeking to live a thoughtful, independent, mental life to know the kind of discovery Eldon has made. I say bravo. Moving on, Julie wrote, Dear Eldon, thank you for what you do for the world, good sir. You've enhanced so many lives in general, the lives of my beloved specifically, and you saved my life. It's an honor to help distribute your work. Well, thank you, Julie. It's uh, I who am honored by your words. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook, and I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, Explaining the Causation of Near-Death Experiences with Robert and Suzanne Mays. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Robert and Suzanne Mays have studied the phenomena related to near-death experiences, NDEs, if you will, uh, together for over 30 years, although neither has had a near-death experience. They focus their research on using NDE phenomena to understand how consciousness works with the brain. Robert received a Bachelor of Science degree in chemistry from MIT, and worked in software development at Eastern Eastman Kodak Company, and IBM corporation for more than 30 years, where he achieved the level of senior software engineer. In retirement, he has taught high school chemistry at several Waldorf schools in the United States. Suzanne received an Associate in Arts degree in Medical Secretarial Science from Alfred State College. As a certified music practitioner with a lyre, she has provided palliative care, patients at UNC Hospital and Duke University Medical Center. She also teaches LIAR privately and at the Emerson Waldorf School. Robert serves on the board of the International Association for Near-Death Studies, IANs, and both Suzanne and Robert lead a local IANs MDE group that meets once a week. So on that, let's get them in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Robert and Suzanne Mays. Yes, thank you. Good
2: afternoon.
0: It's a pleasure to have you. Now, so, I I understand you guys are kind of uh, practiced at not talking over one another, but so we're sure we kind of avoid that. If you will, let me, at least to to begin with, I'll ask each of you a question separately and then give the other of you an opportunity to respond or to clarify, you know, how you each answer. Does that work okay?
3: Sure, yes.
0: All right, so to begin with, ladies before gentlemen, Suzanne... Dr. Raymond Moody coined the term NDE, but that said, the definition of an NDE is arguably a moving target among many. So if we can, let's kind of begin with the definition. Now, by this, I mean, you know, for some it seems easy, but for many it's quite complicated. Is it a near-death experience if I come close to death, lose consciousness, and see loved ones, etc.? Or do I have to be clinically dead before my experience qualifies as an NDE? And or is there yet another form of NDE that you feel is not being treated?
2: That's a big question. Um, first of all, if we were to give a definition, an broad definition, it's an, a near-death experience is a profound subjective experience. And what could set it off does not necessarily mean that you're going, that it's a critical situation, but in most cases it is a trauma or an illness, um, but it can happen spontaneously as well. Um, it can happen, um, in meditation for instance, or, um, just in a moment of inspiration, um, Some of the common elements in the NDE are a feeling of peace and that it's very hyper-real, extremely lucid in all your sensations. Um, There's no pain. um, And there is this transition sometimes between uh, the localized out-of-body experience into the actual um, more um, heightened experience experience, that where you do meet deceased relatives, deceased beings, human beings, also meet spirit beings, and there can be a life review. So um, there's a number of things that can set off a near-death experience. It does not necessarily mean that you have to be in a critical situation. Okay, so I I want to be sure I understand. Mountain climbing, a fall of a mountain, there's an anticipatory Experience that can set off this um, heightened experience.
0: All right, but if I understand you correctly, and if I understand your paper correctly, we'll, we'll get into some depth on, what you're basically saying, you're redefining the classical NDE to say you don't need to be dead clinically, you don't need to be dying clinically, you might even just be meditating behind your desk in your office and you could have one of these experiences. Have I got that correct?
2: Correct. Correct.
0: Okay. Is there anything you want to add to that, Robert?
3: Uh, yes. The, the experience really um, is something, it, it frequently is triggered by a, uh, Traumatic event or illness, but uh, there's something else going on. And uh, the way we uh, define the near-death experience is not by what's causing it, whether you're even near death, but really by what you experience. And so you can have, and and in fact, the experiences uh, in in meditation or in sleep or just uh, being, you know, looking at a sunrise, you uh, is there's no difference between those and and when you have had a cardiac arrest, uh, the elements are the same and the intensity is the same.
0: Okay, now obviously your definition is is outside the typical informed uh, application that I think most people are going to have for a near-death experience. Um, you must you you've used a criteria that's entirely. Apart and it, most of the arguments for all intent and purposes uh, about uh, MDEs um, typically have hinged upon, well, were they clinically dead and if so, for how long and had they flatlined and and on and on and on. and I, and I know you're all familiar with that, but one of the other purported claims that attends an MDE is these uh, life-changing, elements that give rise to completely changing a person's life. Yet, if I understand your paper correctly and your conclusions, that's not also always true. Is that, is that correct, Robert?
3: Well, the experience, as I said, the experience is defined by the uh, elements and the intensity. And, if, uh, and, and there's a scale that's used, uh, the Grayson and the E-Scale, and if you score a 7 or higher, then we consider that, for research purposes, the near-death experience, even though you're not near death. And when those elements are there and you have had a near-death experience, there's been research done on this as well, even though it, the experience came from meditation or sleep or whatever, you have the after-effects. So there is, there is a phenomenon that is uh, actually uh, being occurring uh, independent of physiological state.
0: Okay, now you, you, you basically say in your paper, if I misunderstood you, please correct me, that you can't depend upon this experience um, as a predictor of behavior changes in the subject as well. And that's what I'm looking at. Is that true or false?
3: No, that's uh, not sure exactly where you're looking. Uh, If if you've had a near-death experience, that is to say you've had one of these transcendent uh, kind of profound experiences, you Mm -hmm. will have those after-effects. You will uh, will lose your fear of death and uh, you will feel, you know, you may have uh, other after-effects like being hypersensitive to delight or sound, uh, not wanting to be in crowds, and so on. And um, and that can happen regardless of the, cause, what the apparent cause. And what we're saying is that they happen even when there is no apparent cause. It seems to be spontaneous.
0: Okay, so it does influence the individual's attitude and their behavior as a result. And I apparently interpreted what I read incorrectly. Is that is yeah, that I, the I bottom line? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you this before we get deeply into this paper. Uh, when you look at the claims that are attached to NDEs and, and what you and... Is Suzanne your wife? yeah Okay. So what you and your wife have done in your research is take a purely academic look uh, at NDEs and... Uh, and, and we'll deal with that. But there are lots of claims that allegedly people make attached to NDEs. For example, there is one researcher out there who insists that it's not uncommon for IQs to be increased as a result of an NDE. Indeed, not, uh, IQs increase to exceed 200. Have you found that to be true?
3: No, I don't think that that's uh, I don't think that there is a, a study that says that uh it may that may be based on a few a few cases i don't think that that's correct and and our experience of near death experiencers that that is not correct
0: you hear that uh, we have had that particular researcher on the show and I've asked her for that evidence, but it's never been forthcoming. And I've spoken to some stat psychologists who'd like to know the instruments she used to measure that IQ with. Right. Okay. Yep. <laughs> this question is for either of you. In your opinion, does it do a disservice to the field of near-death research to mix falsifiable information like this IQ stuff uh, with the subjective reports and call it science?
3: Yes, unfortunately it does.
0: So then when, when you begin to enter the field, and as you have with IONS and uh, with your papers and public speaking events, what kind of reception do you meet among the scientists that you're accustomed to dealing with?
3: Well, there's a, there's a range of skepticism, and, uh, and it's uh, turning around a bit on, uh, among some of the researchers that we deal with. Uh, there's always been a hesitancy to say, well, this obviously says this. You know, near-death experiences obviously are proof of afterlife survival. And, uh, and we're hesitant to say that, too, because we, we are uh, wanting to see the data, and uh, we are always looking for more data, more more instances, more cases, uh, more detailed uh, look at the phenomenon. And, uh, you know, until we get there and we can say, well, because of this, 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 and this, then there is a strong suggestion that uh, NDEs um, are indicating survival. And uh, And so there's you know, over the years that we've been involved uh, directly in research and working with other researchers, that it's coming. That's coming. There are more and more that are saying that, or or, or at least saying that the data certainly suggests it.
0: Okay. Uh, one of the things that, you know, the skeptics, and I don't happen to be a skeptic, I've, I've interviewed a lot of people, including those that have had the experiences themselves. And And I happen to be, if you will, a believer. So, okay, but what I try to do is question the things that I believe on a regular basis. So I'm going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate, if I may, with you, okay? When when we look at the human condition and we discover that there are switches. I'm just going to call them switches. You know, we have anatomical resources and we just simply hit the switch like the physician tapping us on the knee and we have that knee-jerk response. So we see as in the Belgium study that you quote on page 8 of your work uh, that there's a switch in the brain that will produce uh, an NDE. Well, the skeptic is going to say, you know, that negates the... Uh, nature of this being some kind of transcendental experience, this must be like the, the shock switch uh, that an animal turns on when it's about to be eaten alive and it's trapped. That little squirrel is held under the fox. It goes into shock and it no longer has any pain. And who knows, maybe it's having an NDE. What say you to that kind of thing?
3: Well, the switch that you're referring to, I think, is is the what we we're calling the separation of the non-material mind from the physical body? And, but it
0: can be artificially stimulated. That's what I'm saying.
3: Oh, artificially stimulated. Well, yeah, we, we use had, a
0: you know low voltage electric current. Boom! Here it goes.
3: No, well, if we could get a if we could get a low any kind of phys- physiological uh, uh, effect where we could be guaranteed or pretty, pretty certain that somebody's going to have a near-death experience experience, not necessarily getting close to death, mm-hmm. uh, that that, uh, that would be quite remarkable. Uh, that doesn't appear to be the way it works. And uh, certainly, uh, and so you're reading a lot into what we're saying. Uh, we're saying that there's a proximate cause. There seems to be a common cause, proximate cause, meaning immediately before you have this experience, the same thing happens, and the same thing ha- that's happening for, for in our estimation. Hey, Robert,
0: let's let's hold it right there if we can. We've got a hard break coming up. When we come back, I'll have you pick it up and f- finish fleshing this out for us, if you will. Okay. That's we're speaking great. with Robert and Suzanne Mays about the causation of near-death experiences. To learn more about our guests, visit, visit their website at Self Conscious Mind. One word, selfconsciousmind.com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder in the chat room unless you're driving in your car, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned, we'll be right back.
2: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse? Only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you, I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to how high is up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble.
3: Unlock the power of your mind. This is
0: Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Robert and Suzanne Mays about the causation of near-death experiences. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music psychology is a new field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including investigations of the human psyche. Alright, on that, we just played some of Mozart's Magic Flute, a special rendition chosen by our guests, so please tell us. Why is this music important to both of you, and how does it instruct us about who you are?
2: So may I take the challenge of this question?
0: Please, okay. especially since you're the musician. <laughs>
2: right. Well, um, the music has to do with a con- with initiation, a spiritual initiation, and you could and it has to do where there's a trial they go through with the fire and the water. It's a, it's a form of dying and then coming out and they're they're freed and they and they have um gone through this special um preparation spiritually for being living a different way and and coming to to how love overcomes everything um so if you look at what happens with a near-death experience Again, a person goes through something that is, is life-altering and, and they die in a, in a kind of a way they die and they come back a different person. And this is very similar to what you will find when you do a lot of investigation about um, religious development from Ian's back, um, where the, the pupil has to go through this, this three-day process of, of actually coming near to death as an initiation process, and they come out of it having experienced the spiritual world, and they can talk about the spiritual world, and they come back with with particular kinds of gifts. Um, And it's very—so the contemporary times where you have more and more people having crossed the threshold, in, in essence, and come back, and they're able to speak, even though it's still kind of ineffable for them, they are able to speak about the experiences they have, people, beings that they've, they've met, messages that have been given to them. Their life is changed. Their priorities are changed. They become a whole different person.
0: All right. Now, do you think the composer actually had that all in mind, or are you just using that because that's the context of, the, of its use in the particular play that you've chosen?
2: Um, I believe Mozart was part of a a brotherhood, a spiritual brotherhood, and he knew what he was doing, portraying for the public of what initiation is.
0: Wouldn't surprise me one bit. That's an excellent, excellent description, by the way. If we can, um, let me just jump back a little bit here, Robert, to what we were talking about before the break and, and see if we can do some clarifying. I may well have misinterpreted some things, but we have, by definition, the traditional NDE, which is life-threatening. We have the experience uh, that you're incorporating by way of saying, look, you can have this experience without it being genuinely a life-threatening, traumatic experience and so forth. So I, just for the sake of clarification, if we can, I'll call the one... a. Uh, what, a death NDE, and we'll call the other one a non-death NDE.
3: Right, or a near-death-like experience,
0: yes. Okay, so using my definition, this non-death NDE has these deep experiences, experiences that are often defined as a sense of oneness, going into the light, out-of-body journeys, and so forth, right? Now, those feelings can be synthetically generated using electromagnetic means, magnetic current, as in Persinger's helmet, uh, or in other ways by dimming the activity specifically in the parietal lobe, which is that area of the brain that, that for all intent and purposes we identify ourselves and in our, in our place in, in space, um, by way of meaning. So my question was, and maybe you know, you can tell me if it's not relevant, but if you can produce this sort of oneness, this immersion, this ineffable, this out of body synthetically, does that, does that imply that we're physiologically hardwired? To have this broader, what you call NDE experience.
3: Well, I, first of all, I, I dispute your premise there that that this is caused can be caused by some physiological method. Uh, and and Persinger's uh, God Helmet is a good example because the NDEers have been in Persinger's God Helmet, and it's nothing at all like the near-death experience. There there has been a Cases of uh, people who had uh, gravitational loss of consciousness in a centrifuge. You know, uh, as pilots, they were, and they've also had a near-death experience, and they they had the experience of the, you know, the sense of being out of their body and the tunnel of you know their vision narrowing like into a tunnel, and they say, and and they've had a near-death experience, and they say it's totally different. It's not the same thing, and so. And,
0: so yeah. it's not it's not a matter of looking at what the brain's doing. So we we're, we're not it's not objectively definable by way of an activity of the physiology you're saying. It's yes, defined by the characteristic of the depth of the experience itself.
3: Well, yes, and and there that's correct. And uh, the you don't get the hyperreal, you don't get the narrative of you know, that you get in a near-death experience, you don't get the, the intensity of the experience, and you don't get vertical perceptions that you get in the uh, near-death experiences, uh, there are, you know, many, many different uh, characteristics that are just not present. And, okay, let me, if I can,
0: let me just play still devil's advocate for a minute. There are, I mean, I I doubt there's a human being on the planet that's uh, an adult that has not had a dream that is so vivid that when they awaken, they were uncertain as to whether it was a dream or not. We all have very, very vivid dreams. Now, Kevin Nelson, and I'm sure you know who he is, professor of neurology, Kentucky, in a peer-reviewed article, insists that most if not all ndes are rem events i had kevin on the show and he admitted that okay i'm not going to say it's all but based on my research this is kevin speaking rem is an active element in ndes <clears throat> rem is of course the rapid eye movement associated with dream sleep i don't we don't need to get deep into that but the bottom line is uh, are are these events, when I'm sitting behind my desk in deep meditation, how do I separate that from a dreamlike experience and know that it is something other than that?
3: When, when you look at the phenomenology of the REM events that he's talking about versus the near-death experience, it's, it's night and day different. And this is this was uh, uh, addressed very um, Thoroughly with, uh, by um, Jeff Long and Jan Holden, uh, uh, contra to uh, Kevin Nelson. But the the rem, if REM is the cause and uh, of nearly all of them, then you'd have to have cases where you would have REM, and and that does not fit everything, and in fact, it doesn't fit very many of them. Uh, Unless you want to change the definition of, of these REM events to be, uh, you know, something that uh, by definition fits all of the cases, uh, which is really stretching. So, uh, so those, that's my response to Kevin Nelson.
0: Okay, so I'm just curious now, both of you. It sounds like the way you have defined the definition, it, it becomes somewhat tautological. That is you know a bachelor's an unmarried man that's a tautology, so we can say if the experience fits our definition, it's a genuine n d e but if it doesn't, it's not really an n d e
3: well, yeah, and that's i think what kevin nelson is 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 trying trying to fit uh all n d e s to be rem and and we're finding that. You know there are there are near-death experiences, and by the way, it is not our definition. This is the standard definition uh, that you look at the experience, you look at the at the intensity of the experience in and in the Grayson scale, and then if the number is seven or more, then it's a, it's taken to be a near-death experience. I mean, experiences that are less than seven are still valid experiences, but for research purposes, seven is the is the low threshold.
0: Okay, but and, now. Go ahead. I don't yeah, mean to cut so, you off.
3: So, we are not, I mean, we're saying, if, if you're talking about what has taken to be near-death experiences, as defined by the Grayson scale, meaning you have these elements of of, of peacefulness and being out of the body and being uh, seeing a great light, uh, meeting spiritual or deceased relatives and so on, life review, all of those elements are there, and if you had... Enough of those elements it, with enough intensity, then it is the near-death experience. And and, and the, those experiences will happen in dreaming, in sleep. And uh, and by the way, those uh, some of the other elements that are not in the scale but are there is the hyperreal uh, uh, vividness. It's also the indelibility of the of memory. The memories are indelible. And and when you have um, Dreams, dreams typically, even vivid dreams, typically are not not remembered, not remembered as vivid, whereas near-death experiences, including in dreams and meditation, they are right there as if they happened yesterday. And, uh, you know, so that's, and, and that, those characteristics of memory have also been studied, I, I think that we mentioned them in the paper, um, uh, that the memories that occur in a near-death experience are take you know are have the characteristics of of real memories, memories of a real experience, a real event in the person's life that they participated in. You don't get that with dreams.
0: Okay, <clears throat> to be fair, Olaf Blank in Switzerland uh, would disagree with you. Would yeah, I know? Would argue that he's able to use electric current uh, to switch off. Uh, the uh, parietal lobe, and that's the same area that uh, REM consciousness uh, turns off. And uh, but all right, let's let's do this. NDEers report sometimes that they have horrific experiences. Yeah. One researcher that I spoke to said there are probably far more of those than we're aware of because. If a person admits to having an NDE that's negative, the devil, Beelzebub, what have you, they're basically sentencing themselves. They're basically admitting to being an evil person. So I have a two-part question. If the white light in the tunnel are real, existentially, they exist independent of our fantasies, does the evil also exist? And second part, do you think there are as many dark events surrounding NDE experiences, and they just aren't reported?
3: Right. All right. So, um, yes, if if we take that the experience is real, and and we, you know, look at the phenomenology and and the veridical aspects of the near-death experiences, and the evidence strongly suggests that they are real events. That and real perceptions and and reality and and we extrapolate that to even into the transcendental uh, aspects of the near death experience and therefore the experiences of uh, these negative uh, um, you know distressing events uh, are also real but we have to be careful about you know where the reality is coming from and and one can say. Uh, because because there is also there are also cases where the you know, the NDE is being shown the things that the NDE er brings along with their own mind state. And um, and so there are you know, there's a connection with the person's own projection, I guess you could say, of their their mental state in the near death experience. And so some of that is what we're talking about. Uh, the, the not all distressing NDE's are hellish. In fact, there only a small percentage of them are. And I think that, that those numbers are real. And I think that the numbers that we find are, are yes, there will be some hesitation, but it's not, it does not appear at all that, that the percentages are uh, much higher than what we see. Uh, the, the, real, the actual percentages are much higher than what we're seeing. Which is like more like 10 to 15 percent of, uh, have some distressing elements. And of those, only a few of those, like, uh, maybe one tenth of those, so like maybe one to one and a half percent of all near death experiences have, are hellish. But still, those are real. And we think that what they're experiencing are real, and real in the sense that, the spiritual realm that they experience are, have a, have a reality.
0: Have you have you looked at uh, a correlation? I mean, since you have numbers on on the negative death experiences, um, you know, I, I worked in criminalistics for a long time and uh, did some work in the prison system, and I've seen some pretty interesting characters, and uh, you know, <clears throat> not many of them have horrific. Uh, dreams about the things they've done. Have if you, if you looked to see if there's a correspondence between the mm, behavior of a human being and these terrible NDEs so you could say, well, that's expected, or uh, is that a null point in your mind?
3: I, I would say that um, it, is, it isn't what one has done but the state of mind one is in when one makes the transition. Uh, and, and, and you come across cases, well, all right. So the, there are many, many cases of bad people having perfectly positive near-death experiences. Uh, you come across people who are mean and who are in a bad mood at the time that they or are fearful at the time that they transition, and they will have, we would expect them more, more of them, more percentage-wise, to have a uh, distressing near-death experience. And and those that you know, near-death experiences, a few that we've talked to that have had distressing NDEs. Sometimes that is the the case that they were they were frightened, that they were frustrated, even though what they were experiencing was positive you know being with an angel who wanted to take them to another place and no i don't want to go because i'm afraid and i want to be with my parents and so it's it's you know partly of what you're what what you what you take into the you know when you when you make this separation
0: that's the interesting the
3: body that, I've
0: i've uh, talked to hospice uh care providers uh, professionals and uh, some hospice patients will die repeatedly before they finally die. Yeah. And uh, I've never heard them report uh, that someone was, you know, that, that <clears throat> they encountered this uh, negative uh, and, and held back from it. I have heard them say that they didn't want to go uh, to the light, but I've never heard them talk about the negative that way you uh you think that happens in that area as well?
3: Yes, uh if you uh there's a book by John Price, uh the fiscal minister and mm-hmm. um his experience was that um you know, he he had six parishioners who had I don't know, can't remember the exact number, several parishioners who had who were uh had distressing experiences. And he said, uh, they, they were pretty mean people. <laughs> and, um, you know, so he ex- encountered, uh, you know, parishioners who had distressing near death experiences.
0: So theoretically, uh, if we were to have a negative, and we realized it, we get ourselves back. However, we change our frame of mind you're saying we, we would have a different experience when we finally did cross over. Yes. Have I got that right?
3: Yes. yes.
0: So, so it's the state of mind, in your view, that we take at the time of a death experience that determines what we will experience.
3: That is what we, our reading of the phenomena is. It, it, okay. But it's just that we're not saying categorically that that's the way it is.
0: Right. Okay. But, but now I know you've not, got a bit of a, a tradition, a biblical understanding here. So I've got to ask you, do you think that that would be the same situation for the worst person you think of? We'll just use Hitler. Do you think that would be the same way with Hitler? He could see it, change it, and have the good one?
3: Yes. Because, but but you have to understand that, that, you know, there's, there's plenty for Hitler to uh, account for that he has to go through with his life review. And we think that the life review, even though you don't have a life review in a near-death experience, we believe that you do have a life review, uh, when you finally do transition.
0: Get to the other side. So
3: there is, there is, uh, you know, the opportunity for, uh, seeing all the, you know, the Bad things that you've done and the, re, you know, the repercussions and the reverberations throughout, you know, thousands or millions of
0: people. Yeah. All right. Let me ask you this: You have your own model of consciousness. What's the best evidence, in your view, that the mind actually separates from the body?
3: Okay. Well, this is this is uh, primarily uh, the vertical experiences. Uh, where the person could not possibly have seen what they saw accurately, that was verified. There's, we're working on the translation of a book uh, that was writ- uh, written in Dutch, uh, and uh, it has it had, when it was published, 78 of these cases. It now, w- with the English edition, it will be 100, and, uh, 100 or so cases. And uh, two-thirds of those cases are... These veridical perceptions. So, like 67% of these, 67 of these cases are veridical perceptions uh, where the person has uh, seized something. It's been verified right away in many of the cases, and corroborated by somebody independent. Uh, the other evidence is that there are cases what we call apparitional NDEs where the and the ear uh, wants to see somebody but is sick and so on doesn't has a near-death experience has this experience of traveling to that person the person uh, is sees this person sees the, an apparition but it's a solid you know like the person's right there
2: right.
3: and um, and you know they are sometimes there's an interaction like communication and sometimes uh, it, the person disappears or whatever but the person the end the ear reports that they went there at, and at the same time the person that he visited reports that they were there and they saw them and then they disappeared and uh and these these cases are objective uh, uh evidence uh and there's about seven of them in this in the book you're
0: gonna uh, have to you're gonna have to let me know when this book is available and come back yeah, to the show the and long. i I'm sorry, we've just run out of time. I want to thank you for your work, Robert and Suzanne, and for your willingness to share it with us as openly as you have. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. Again, I want to thank our guest and all of you for joining us. Do check out their website. Do uh, follow up on uh, what we've been discussing today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week. Until then, remember, believing in yourself always matters.